Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 35 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Welcome back to the podcast. If you have not already, please take a quick second to tap the subscribe button. We've now been heard over 15,000 times around the world, which is amazing, but we're still a pretty new show, so subscribing lets your podcast provider know that people are interested in our content, and then they make it more discoverable for other people as well. So the topic of today's discussion is going to be index funds, which can be yet another good source of income-producing investments. For anyone tuning in for the first time, my name is Alexis Asadi. I'm your host. I run a company called Pacific Income, along with a few others. And every Wednesday, I publish this podcast, which focuses on any type of asset that can produce revenue for investors. So we look at everything from real estate investment trusts to mortgage funds to ETFs to tax lien certificates quite literally anything that you could think of. So right now we're going through our segment on investment funds, which we began way back in episode 23. And as always, I do recommend that you start listening to this podcast at least from there, uh, because I try to build up on the prior shows. So as our listeners know, income investing can come with all sorts of benefits. In my view, the top four are as follows. Number one, you can use the dividends that they pay to supplement your regular income. Number two, Many of these investments can also appreciate in value, so you can earn recurring cash flow from them and realize a capital gain. I often like to say that they provide the best of both worlds. Number three, there's plenty of diversity within the ecosystem, since income-producing assets can exist across industries like real estate and financial services, energy, natural resources, they can be on the stock market, they can trade in the exempt markets, they can be in Canada, in the US, in the UK, and around the world. And number four, but definitely not finally, uh, many of them are quite affordable and they can be purchased for under a few hundred dollars in a lot of cases. So there's not necessarily a high barrier to entry. Like I said, we're going to spend today talking about index funds, which are a type of investment fund. But let's back up for a moment and quickly recap the current segment. An investment fund is a business that pools money from a group of investors, anywhere from a few of them to a few hundred of them to thousands of them, and then it deploys those investors' capital into various assets. So most funds will target a certain industry like real estate or maybe mining or dividend stocks, and as such, they can be a good way to gain exposure to a particular sector. For instance, I'm not particularly adept at investing in precious metals. I couldn't tell you the first thing about gold or silver. So if I don't want to spend time picking gold stocks or bullion contracts, then I might search for a fund that invests in precious metals. Some funds concentrate on strategies and objectives rather than on asset classes. So there are funds out there that will specialize in options trading, short selling, leveraged investments, inverse investments, income generation, and more. And in all cases, investment funds will have a manager who is usually compensated by earning a percentage of the fund's assets under management. That's also known as AUM. And that manager will typically be paid a performance bonus as well if they do well. In our 26th episode, we covered some of the underpinnings of investment funds. We addressed questions like, why do some funds pay dividends while others don't? In that episode, we saw that funds that produce consistent revenue will often invest in things like mortgages and rental properties and dividend stocks and royalty companies and credit instruments. It's not very common to see uh, income products that will buy into things like land development projects or cryptocurrencies or uh, small cap stocks. Uh, it's, it's not that easy to generate revenue from speculative plays. From there, we moved on to a specific type of investment fund, which is called a mortgage fund. 
uh, we saw that mortgage funds will either lend money directly to borrowers and then secure the debt with a mortgage, or they'll purchase mortgage loans on the debt markets. Then the following week, we looked at entities like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the Canada Housing Trust, which are used by the U.S. and Canadian governments to boost their respective property markets. In episode 29, we talked about real estate funds. So these funds will either own real estate directly or they'll own real estate businesses like real estate operating companies and real estate investment trusts, also known as REITs. After that, we went on to single asset real estate companies. These are not technically investment funds. In fact, they're not at all investment funds. However, they do raise capital from investors, which is then used to acquire or develop a single project, such as an apartment building. But then once the deal is over, the company is then dissolved. So they're basically created for one purpose. You raise money from investors, buy and develop a project. And then once the project is done, pay everyone back and uh, close up shop. Episodes 32 and 33 were dedicated to a very popular investment and one that's going to be particularly relevant to today's show. And these are called exchange traded funds or ETFs. So we saw that ETFs are investment funds that trade on the stock market. As such, you could have a mortgage fund that is also an ETF. It would be called a mortgage ETF. Uh, You could have a real estate fund that is also an ETF. It would creatively be called a real estate ETF. Then we went on a little bit of a tangent and spent an episode on something called ETNs or exchange traded notes. Now, these are not investment funds, they are loans, but I figured it'd be a good time to explore them since they're born out of exchange-traded funds. Now, they're not a common investment, they don't normally produce income, uh, but they do exist, and I thought it'd be an appropriate time to cover them. So, the last three months of discussing investment funds and related subjects has brought us to where we are today, which is covering another type called an index fund, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, in the next 10-15 minutes. But before we get any further... Let's take a moment to address a question from one of our listeners. Remember, if you've got something on your mind, please do feel free to let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. So today's question comes from Maya, who is in Baltimore, and she wrote me the following message. Hey, Alexis, thanks for the interesting podcast. I just have a quick question. How often do you check on your investment portfolio? How often do you log into your brokerage account? uh, And do you think that I should follow a specific schedule? Okay, so uh, Maya, thanks for your question. Uh, I don't really have a a fixed schedule. I'll casually check my brokerage account uh, maybe once or twice a week just out of habit, but I don't spend a whole lot of time on it just because I'm most interested in earning income from my investments rather than on checking whether they're going up or down in price. You know, nothing really changes for me when they fluctuate. Uh, I just really want to keep getting paid my dividends. So whether it goes up by 1% or 2% or down by 1% or 2%, doesn't really make me worried or excited or make me feel any kind of way. But with that said, I do follow the companies that I've invested in very carefully. I will subscribe to their press releases, which can usually be done on their websites. Uh, I'll also set up Google Alerts so I can be kept abreast of whatever developments are happening uh, on the internet. And I'll follow uh, close analysis and and just make sure that I'm kept up to date uh, with their happenings. Now, if you have access to something called a full-service brokerage account, you may find that your broker will actually provide you with pretty thorough research and analysis. And so if that's the case, uh, you might find that you log into your brokerage account, not necessarily to check on the price of your investments, but to use some of their research. I don't typically do that just because my, my brokerage accounts don't provide too much better than what else is readily available on the internet. But you might find that your broker does, and so you might have a different uh, schedule for checking on your investments. Uh, But generally, 
you know, using my brokerage account for me is just a function of or just a matter of checking prices as opposed to doing my research. And therefore, I pretty much log in once or twice a week. Uh, it's not it's not planned. It's just something that I do. So thanks for your question, Maya. And for everyone else, please remember to visit alexisasadi.net slash podcast if you want to submit a question of your own. All right. So what is an index fund and why are we covering it? Well, an index fund is a passively managed mutual fund, which aims to track an index such as the price of gold or North American dividend stocks or even the price of the New York Stock Exchange. It tracks an entire index and aims to replicate it. So index funds were first introduced to the market on December 31st, 1975 by John Bogle, who is the founder of Vanguard. As you may know, Vanguard is the largest and second largest provider of mutual funds and ETFs, respectively. So the first index fund was appropriately called First Index Investment Trust. It was designed to track the S&P 500 index, and it was immediately criticized. Industry professionals just did not think that people would want average returns. After all, this fund would only try to copy the performance of the broad American stock market. It didn't aim to do what everyone else did which was to try to outperform what the markets paid. Now, the first index investment trust was eventually renamed as the Vanguard 500 Index Fund, which now has a little bit less than half a trillion dollars of assets under management. So obviously, Mr. Bogle's critics were very, very wrong. The fact of the matter is that it's difficult for anyone, professional or not, to do better than the stock market on a consistent basis, that is, beating it year after year after year. The stock market is priced based on investors' expectations and interpretations of the economy and the geopolitical framework. It's not all about earnings reports and trading signals. The stock market is really a function of human psychology and activity. Unless you have a crystal ball, it can be very challenging to make accurate predictions each and every single time. As such, the purpose of the First Index Investment Trust was simple. Just copy the stock market and charge a very low management fee for doing so. So right now, the fund's management expense ratio, or MER, is 0.14%, which is pretty low for a mutual fund. Now, that first index fund not only spawned the creation of countless others, but it was also the inspiration for the exchange-traded fund, or ETF. So if you notice that the two sound familiar, that's because they are. Both of them aim to track indexes, and both of them have low management fees. However, there are important differences between ETFs and index funds. It's important to understand them because you might gain exposure to a certain asset class by using one vehicle over the other. So the first thing to know is that index funds are mutual funds. Mutual funds are traded once a day after the close of business. They don't trade on the stock market. Rather, when you buy shares or units in a mutual fund, you do so directly from the fund itself. And for that reason, their prices are determined by their net asset value, so the value of their underlying investments. ETFs, on the other hand, as you know, are bought and sold on the stock market. So just like a stock, you buy shares in ETFs from other investors who currently own those shares. Therefore, the price of an ETF is a function of supply and demand. If there's a lot of demand for a particular ETF, then its price will increase. If there's not, then its price will go down. And unlike a mutual fund, ETF prices can change throughout the day, whether it's on a second-by-second second or minute-by-minute minute or hour-by-hour hour basis. In theory, index funds can track the index a little bit more closely than ETFs because their prices are not as easily manipulated. Second, all mutual funds, including index funds, will have a minimum investment amount. 
Uh, so they'll usually require between $500 and $1,000 to get started. However, I've seen funds that have minimums of $10,000 or even $100,000. A lot of the time, the same fund will have different minimums based on what class of shares you're buying. You'll recall that we talked about that in episode 25. But the minimum investment amount for an ETF is just whatever its trading price is. If there's an ETF that's trading for $2, then you only need $2 to buy a share in it. Third, you'll be charged a commission to your broker whenever you buy or sell an ETF, just like any other stock. Mutual funds, on the other hand, do not normally have commissions. As such, they might be more suitable for those working with smaller amounts of capital because your money won't be eaten up by commissions. Although on the other side, the management fees for index funds are usually a little bit higher than they are for ETFs. So yeah, kind of have to weigh the, weigh the two out. Fourth, index fund offerings are not as broad as ETFs. For instance, you'll recall that we looked at an inverse ETF in episode 32, which moves in the opposite direction of the index. So if you buy an inverse oil ETF, then that ETF will aim to go up in value when oil prices go down and vice versa. Or like we covered leveraged ETFs, which will aim to mimic the performance of an index, but just multiple times over. So for example, a double leveraged copper ETF would replicate the price of copper plus an extra 100%. There are also leveraged inverse ETFs, which will combine the two. So they'll move backwards from the index plus another 100 or 200%. However, index funds are generally restricted in how much leverage they can employ. In fact, some are not allowed to make leveraged bets at all. They're designed to be a little bit more boring and plain, and to my knowledge, uh, there is no such thing as an inverse index fund. Fifth, ETFs are usually a bit more tax efficient than index funds are, so you might take that into consideration if you're investing outside of a tax-sheltered account. So as you can see, index funds and ETFs are similar yet different, but which one makes for the better investment? Well, as with most things investing, it really does depend on the particular deal and on your personal preferences and goals. However, some analyses show that under normal market conditions, if you're investing under $60,000 in an ETF, you would need to hold on to it for at least a year to realize the benefits of lower taxes and management fees. That amount would reduce to $13,000 if you were willing to hold on to the ETF for 10 years. Otherwise, you'd be better off working with an index fund. But then again, index funds don't always have the same flexibility and variety. So to simplify things, and again, please excuse the generality, if you're investing smaller sums of money, the math usually shows that index funds are better for you. Like ETFs, there are plenty of index funds that aim to pay income to investors. The first one that comes to mind is the Vanguard High Dividend Yield Index Fund. This one seeks to track a benchmark that provides broad exposure to U.S. companies that are dedicated to consistently paying larger-than-average dividends. It owns big companies that you've probably heard of, like Johnson & Johnson and J.P. Morgan Chase and ExxonMobil. The minimum investment for this company or for this fund is $3,000. However, it only pays income once every quarter. I know a lot of our listeners, including myself, uh, are geared towards monthly cash flow. There's also the Federated Strategic Value Dividend Fund, which seeks to earn a higher dividend yield than that of the broad equity market. So it mainly invests in high dividend paying stocks of companies with dividend growth potential, such as Altria Group, AT&T, and Coca-Cola. And unlike the Vanguard Index Fund, this one pays dividends each month. In addition, there's the Newberger Bourbon Equity Income Fund, which invests in a mix of income-producing securities, primarily across dividend-paying stocks and convertible bonds. The fund is highly diversified, with no single holding comprising more than 3% of its portfolio. And this one pays out on a quarterly basis as well. So that takes us to the end of index funds and thus the conclusion of this episode. 
Next week, we're going to go over something called a dividend growth fund, which can be found in both mutual funds and ETFs. And it's going to be particularly conducive to income-oriented investors. So make sure you tune in. Also, I just published the second edition of my book uh, called The Foundations of Investing. I updated the book and I tried to add some more insight. The price is going to depend on which retailer you buy it from. Right now, it's available on uh, my website, alexisasadi.net. In a couple of weeks, it's going to be available on Amazon and basically every other uh, retail platform. I'm not sure if you care about something like this, but just so you know, I'm selling the book at cost. Uh, So basically, the price is set by the retailer that you buy it from. I don't actually make any profit. Uh, When you you buy the book, the order is placed. Uh, They print it and ship it and do all that stuff. But I don't actually make a profit, uh, not because I'm such a great guy, but just because, you know, making a dollar per book doesn't really excite me and I'm not really in the book selling business. So I figured I'd just make it as cheap as possible uh, and try to get the information out there as broadly as possible. So again, this one's called The Foundations of Investing. It's the second edition and this book has a white cover as opposed to the other one, which has a gray and red cover. All right. Thanks for tuning in. And I uh, will talk to you next Wednesday as we go forward on our discussion about dividend growth funds. Thanks a lot.